Welcome in to the Ots and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Preem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. Eric, I've had a shot of caffeine in my coffee today. For it's been a couple days since I've had a coffee. Oh wow! So I'm I'm jacked up. I'm ready to go. I've had a uh, a watermelon black tea, which is about as caffeinated as I get, and uh, I'm I'm also ready to go. I, I think we've got some fun things to talk about here. Uh, it's always it's always a more fun podcast after a 71 point win than a than a loss where you lose on the last play of the game. Basically, it, it, think, it of seems to, think, it, think of that. It's 71 yeah. point win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like we didn't. Well, see like, that, that doesn't happen yeah. very often. 71 point win. Like, are you are you is that are you, are you kidding me? I mean, neither of, neither of us saw this coming. You listened to our prediction podcast uh, on Friday, and we both thought it was going to be a game Oregon won by, like, three, three, maybe four touchdowns, like maybe something like that. Neither of us saw ten touchdown win. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the spread was 24. Right. When the game started. And Oregon didn't just win by 24. They, they didn't even double it. I mean, they almost tripled Yeah. the spread. I mean, that's just that, – just nuts. Uh, Oregon extended their home non-conference winning streak to 24 games in a row. Uh, this was their 15th consecutive home opening win. They also improved to 38 and 14 all time at Autzen for for openers, and they're 13 and one during that span as a ranked team at Oregon. Um, here's an interesting stat: the last 15 home openers, the Ducks are averaging 58 and a half points per game. Uh, in those games. So maybe we should have gone back in the history books and looked at that a little bit. Uh, the 77 points tied a program modern era record, uh, for Oregon football equaled the Autzen scoring record. Um, had 11 different players score a touchdown for the first time in modern era school history. Uh, and the Ducks have scored a touchdown in 29 consecutive quarters in home openers dating back to 2012. Uh, I, I have a lot more I could get, get going on just the historical context. Uh, of this game, Eric, but I think overall, just a, almost a near perfect football game that you, you wanted to see from this, you know, from Oregon after how the Auburn game shook out and the potential hangover effect and, you know, de- the, the importance of getting a victory and, and looking good doing it too. I think the thing that's wild that gets a little overlooked is that this, but kicking didn't even start until like midway through the second quarter. Like it was seven, right? it was seven to six after one quarter. And yes. then they go out and just totally put on a drubbing or sorry, seven three after one quarter, seven to six. Cause that uh, Nevada scores, uh, you know, right away in the second quarter. Uh, it felt like a game that looked like it was going to be a little more competitive than we, I mean, I was sitting in the, in the box, you know, in the, in the press box going, Boy, this could be one where, you know, I predicted 38-14. Maybe I took Nevada for granted. That was kind of how I felt early. I knew Nevada couldn't really move the ball, but their defense was looking good. Herbert was missing some throws. I was going, "Uh uh-oh. And then suddenly it's back-to-back 28-point quarters and a 14-point fourth quarter. Yeah, and you look up, and it's just a total – it's an annihilation. It was nothing that any of us expected. And, yeah, I think you come away, and and I I agree. Near perfect is right. Um, I don't know if we want to jump right into it. I did team grades over the weekend. I gave – not to spoil the story, I gave a lot of A pluses out because just it was it was a lot of things where you look at it's like boy, it's, I'd be having to really pick some nits not to say this was about perfect, um, and that goes across the board offensively almost, almost across the board defensively. I think uh, this was just 
you know, both sides of the ball, basically whenever, whoever was on the field, because they ran through a ton of defensive guys and a ton of offensive guys in the second half that don't normally play. And yet it was a 42 to zero second half. Um, this was as I think dominant as an outcome as you could have even expected. And again, uh, you come out of this one, you go, okay, it was Nevada who is not a Pac-12 team, but is a team that just beat Purdue, but we should not forget that. Um, but that's, this team looks awfully good. And the way the Pac-12 looked this weekend, and especially the Pac-12 North, you come away going like, uh, Oregon looks like the best team and maybe by a decent margin. Yeah, I don't know how, I mean, sometimes grading is very easy, I think, for you, for going in and, and right. being like, hey, this, you know, this group played well, but this group didn't. This deserves this. This deserves that. I think Saturday's game kind of was hard because, right? You, I, at the same time, Oregon played really, really well, but did, you know, you don't also want to be, you know, overzealous and take into account, you know, who the, you know, the context of the, the opponent that Oregon's playing and whatnot. And you don't want to just give out straight A's across the board because that's just easy and, 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 yeah. You know, you, you you can just oh there's 77 points a pluses but I I really think like you pretty much gave every unit basically an A yeah. and it was all pretty much justified like as complete of an Oregon football game as you could play outside of maybe the muff punt in the what when was that the, the second, second quarter second quarter right yeah and, and that was one of them yeah and may, maybe. You know the running backs missing some holes early on in that first half. I, I I don't know if there was a ton, but I mean every other unit was just like, hey, we're gonna play our best football. We're all gonna do it at the same time. It, and that's exactly what it was. And and, and you're right. If, if you go read the story, and I encourage those listening to, it's a little bit more obviously more expansive look at the game than what we'll say in the podcast, at least by position group. Um, but yeah, Matt nailed the two position groups that I didn't give the high marks, which which was running back and then special teams and. And it was worth mentioning, special teams still made some plays. I mean, Kayvon Thibodeau ends up tackling the Nevada punter, you know, and, and sets up an Oregon touchdown uh, on what was a, basically a, a bad snap or at least a bad catch of the snap. Um, and that's a, that's a substantial play. Um, but and, and the Oregon running backs, the game basically ends with Darren Felix running for like a 62-yard touchdown. Yeah. So it's not, it's not like they played terrible. Um, but th- those were the two areas that I think you, if you just kind of looked objectively at it and went like, okay – those maybe were the two weakest areas of the game, but even even those areas, like I said, had some really bright moments. And uh, and and again, it's this was the game that you just objectively go down and go like, yeah, the quarterback play was awesome. Outside of you know a, a slow start for Justin Herbert in the first quarter, I don't know what else you you can ask really for the wide receivers and tight ends. I mean, 14 different guys got passes, seven different guys found the end zone. Uh, there were I think maybe what one or two drops the whole game, and, and, you know, there weren't that many defensively. Everybody got involved. I mean, the box score is just crazy, uh, you know, from top to bottom, players that you both expected to be contributing this year, but then guys like DJ Johnson and Samson New and Mace Funa and Keon Ware Hudson having, you know, big statistical days. And you know, Samson New now two weeks in a row, along with Mace Funa, has looked like a, a potential star at linebacker, and that wasn't things we necessarily expected to be talking about this quickly. So, yeah, it was just a complete, complete effort from this team. And, uh, again, just reflecting back, you know, after you lose a heartbreaker to Auburn like that, this is exactly what the doctor ordered. And I don't think you could have scripted it any better in terms of 
if you're going to go lose a heartbreaking game to respond with about as dominant of a football game as you could script against, again, a Nevada team that I think will maybe win seven or eight games. I don't think they're going to win them out in West, but they're going to be pretty competitive in that conference. Um, they made them look like an FCS opponent. To be they honest. did. Like, they like did. It, it, when you see like the Southern Oregon on the schedule or you see a Montana or, you know, Portland State or, you know, some of these teams that we see out there and Oregon goes in or, or other, you know, top five, top 10 programs go out and they just absolutely blast them and it's never competitive. And that's what Oregon made a, a solid group of five division one team look like, like they, like they were there just for the paycheck. Yeah. And I wrote, I even wrote a story on Friday basically saying that like Nevada's not like these last, I think seven home openers. Cause the last seven home openers were like UC Davis and Southern Oregon and those type of teams. And, Nevada's, at least on paper, looked better than that. I thought they were more impressive in their opening week game. So, uh, you know, it's funny because throughout the game, I was tweeting and asking fans if they were, how they were feeling about the game. And, and basically the consensus was, well, it's just Nevada. Let's see against a real opponent. And I know Nevada isn't Stanford, who are going to, you know, it's their first big test of Pac-12 play, but Nevada's not terrible. And I think I came away, you know, again, I'm not, not all concerns are eased. I still think you want to see these pass catchers do it against a better defensive unit, especially with the number of guys out. Cause when we'll get to that in a moment, cause there are six wide receivers who didn't play in this game. And, and, and one of the best tight ends didn't play either. But again, I, I still come away being very impressed and certainly now heading into the Montana game going, they're going to enter pack 12 play. I think with an awful lot of momentum, which is, which is exactly the way you want to be. And, and again, with the way Stanford looked, and we'll talk about that later as well. Uh, this could be a really, really strong start to the pack 12 slate. I think we need to discuss the defense as a whole because all offseason it was, oh, Oregon's offense is going to be legit. They've got Justin Herbert coming back. All these star receivers have been signed, and, and they're going to help, you know, replenish the cupboard there. Some of the, you know, returning guys are have improved. Don't forget about the offensive line. All the starters are back there. Offense, 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 offense. And, you know, there was a lot of, intrigue about Oregon's defense. We felt like they could be they could, they could be good. I mean, senior Troy Dye came back. Winston's there. You know, three out of the four starters on the secondary are back. And Thomas Graham and Yamade Lenore are both terrific players. Um, you know, but at the same time, you lost an Ugo Amati, who's now made the 53-man roster for the Seahawks. You know, Jalen Jelks is with the Cowboys. Justin Hollins made the 53-man roster for the Broncos. Um, and then, you know... I'm, I'm, I'm missing one other person, right? Kalana Apelu. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Inside linebacker. And, you know, those were like the heart and soul of, of the defense, you know, outside of die and new defensive scheme. You know, what, what's it going to be like? How is this group going to, going to look? And I, Eric, I mean, two weeks in, two weeks into the 2019 season. And I'm ready to say that, you know, Oregon might have the best defense in the Pac-12. And I mean, just look at, look at the stats that, that, the, that they're putting up. I mean, they held, they held Nevada to under 200 yards of total offense. Mm-hmm. This is a, a, a Wolfpack team that moved the ball up and down the field at will against a Purdue team last, in week one. You know, tackles for loss. They already have 20 tackles for loss this season. They are ranked eighth in the country at that. 
you know, they are, you know, third down conversions are, are good. You know, those stats are good. Uh, you know, and the thing I'm most impressed with, with this Oregon defense though, is their tackling. I'm, I'm blown away at how well Andy Avalos, the new defensive coordinator, has got this team to break down, make the play in a one-on-one situation. I mean, there are programs out there where you associate defense. Alabama. In the Pac-12, it's USC, it's uh, Utah, it's, it's Washington. Um, Cal. Oregon has always been known as this offensive, you know, juggernaut. And they may still keep that reputation, but two weeks in with this defense, you know, I think the defense is just as good, if not better, than than what Oregon's offense is like. Oh yeah, I I, I don't think there's any question, and I, I said it on Saturday's podcast that this this looks like the best group in at least five or six years from where I'm sitting. And you're you're right, that's a good point about in the open field, these guys just don't miss many tackles. At least they haven't through two weeks, and and uh, you know, against Auburn, even there there weren't that many. I know in the second half, you know, it seemed like the defense already got worn out, but as a group, they're very sure. Yeah, they're very good in the open field, and you saw it from both defensive backs, linebackers, defensive linemen. I mean, Diamond Lenore out there started the game just blowing up play after play, and he was making great tackles. Javon Holland, who last year was was primarily a guy who you know was a ball hawk, would make some plays, you know, in terms of intercepting passes, breaking up passes, but really wasn't known necessarily as a great tackler. He's out there just throwing guys around you know he, he looks like he's able to make those plays in space so you're right I, there, there doesn't feel like there's a weak spot from that regard and you know that's a big point but to me and you talked about it for a moment it's how many plays are being made behind the line of scrimmage it just feels like everything is behind they're so aggressive off the edge and it doesn't matter if the opponent is running the football if they're passing the football uh, it just feels like there's always two or three ducks around the ball, you know, in the, in, you know, behind the line of scrimmage or at the line of scrimmage. It just, there aren't very many plays. If you go back and watch the game where it's like, there's a clear pocket for the quarterback or the running back, you know, flies through a hole, you know, and moves down the field. And I think that again, that speaks to the way Andy Avalos wants to coach this defense. I think the improved athletes, I think is something that stands out too. Like yeah. Mace, Mace Funa, DJ Johnson, Kayvon Thibodeau off the edge are all, and all of them showed it on, on Saturday in different plays, are all really, really impressive in the open field. I mean, DJ Johnson probably deserves a moment here because he didn't play against Auburn, and then he comes out and has seven tackles, three of those for loss, a sack, and then forces a fumble. Like, he was he was a huge part of that, and that was mostly in the second half. Like, he didn't even really play much in the first. So, uh, and, and again, Mace Funa now has, I think, four tackles for loss in, in two games. Yep. And is, I believe, leading the Pac-12 in tackles for loss. And Johnson with three is, sec- is tied for second. So uh, this is a group of young athletes that I think are going to leave quite the impression. And I'm a little surprised maybe in how quickly they've done it. I didn't necessarily know if, if Funo was going to be this much of a player right away. Clearly he is. I think he's somebody who you want to see on the field maybe even a little bit more. And I, and it's going to be, uh, it's going to be tough for some of these veteran guys, honestly, to not, not to discount Bryson Young and Lamar Winston, but like in Gus Cumberlander, but it's going to be hard to keep some of these guys off the field. I think. I mean, Funa Johnson and Thibodeau have all looked like studs, and uh, it's a credit to those veterans to first hold down those jobs. But like, I think if you're those guys, you're going to have to keep battling all season because these guys are young, hungry, and they're already making a bunch of plays. I think Samson New needs to get 
called out as well, um, okay. in a good way because the the junior linebacker, look, his freshman year he was forced into a role because of injuries he wasn't ready for. Uh, his sophomore year he probably didn't progress as as much as you were hoping and as much as Oregon coaches were hoping. Um, and and I I think you know, he kind of fell down the depth chart a little bit. And people weren't necessarily expecting big things from him. I, I, I probably was one of those guys. And against Auburn, he played really well. And then against Nevada, I mean, he was all over the place. He had his yeah. first career interception. He had that, he had his first career forced fumble, which was just like when he became a brick wall and absolutely just destroyed a Nevada ball carrier, um, with, with a stone cold hit. I mean, he would, he would, Oregon's inside linebackers opposite Troy Dye have really impressed me. Week one, it was Isaac Slade, and he made some plays uh, against Nevada as well. He had a, he had a tackle for loss, but um, week two is it, it was more Samson new, and you know, I, I think that's a big also uh, also that's a big development for this defense as well as finding capable guys to play next to Troy Dye. Yeah, and new's a guy who. I think if the new redshirt rule was in place in 2017, which was his freshman year, probably ends up using his redshirt year that year. Yeah. He played six games, but I think they could have gotten creative in, in not playing him, you know, more than the four. And you probably wish he'd have that now just because he's looks, he looks the part. And it's going to be, again, I think Andy Avalos and Ken Wilson and, and a lot of these defensive coaches are going to have some really tough decisions to have, but like those good tough decisions because you, you have at this point, some really good players in, the, in that second unit. And, and and we saw that throughout on Saturday. And we haven't even gotten to some of these other guys. But, I mean, you're right. Samson New is somebody that's that's going to push Troy Dye and Isaac Slade for minutes maybe. And that's a, a wild thing to say because I, I was also in the camp of, oh, it feels like it's pretty clearly Dye and Isaac Slade at the top of the depth chart. And then you've got MJ Cunningham and Samson New as the next guys. And, Maybe it's a fairly, you know, a big step off to that second group. I don't think you come away from, from these first couple of games feeling that way in the slightest, especially with New, who's just seems like he's always around the ball and always making plays. So again, the, the depth on this defense is tremendous. Uh, it's, it's one thing that I think kind of separates the way this team has looked through two, two weeks than it has in past years where, where there's been, uh, maybe you've got 16 really good defensive players. So you got a couple of guys you can slide in there. Uh, but but there's a couple spots where you just don't have very much depth. I, I look at this team and maybe there's some spots in the secondary, maybe a corner that aren't quite as developed yet. But up front in that front seven, it seems like basically whoever they threw out there was able to make some plays. And, and again, that's a really good problem to have. And over the course of a long football season where I'm knocking on wood right now because Oregon's already dealt with it at wide receiver, but injuries do happen. I think you feel pretty decent about if, if a couple guys were to go down here or there, it just seems like there's capable players ready to kind of fill in if that situation does arise. All right, coming up after the break, we'll give our early look at Montana and also kind of discuss some craziness in the Pac-12 just two weeks in, all coming up after the break. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
Hello everyone, it's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search The Rest is Football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meets. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is on the show as always. And before the break, we tease, we'd be previewing a little bit of Nevada, kind of giving uh, you our early thoughts, early look at the FCS opponents in the Montana Grizzlies. And as Eric said earlier in, in the podcast, this was a team that they are 2-0. Um, they came back last week to beat North Alabama 61-17. to uh, They shut out North Alabama in the second half. Um, scored 45 points in that second half themselves, all after trailing uh, in, in the in the first half to a North Alabama mm-hmm. football team. So you know, good teams do that, right? Like teams that 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 trail, make adjustments, and you know, blow out and take their opponents. And we saw that with Oregon and Nevada in the second quarter and beyond. And then Montana did that in the second half against North Alabama. Um, this is granted though an FCS opponent, meaning you know Oregon is a level up. Oregon has the better recruiting base. They have you know the better program. They are expected to win this football game and and to do it handedly, right? Like there isn't a line out there yet, to my knowledge. But if there was, I would imagine Oregon's going to be a five or or a six score favorite in this football game. Yeah. No. We should mention Montana's ranked 18th in the FCS poll, so this is a good FCS team. But I also think that Nevada is better than Montana and probably by a, a solid margin as well. So you come into this game having respect that Montana is, is again, a good FCS team. That I think it's, it's impressive anytime you beat. And North Alabama, I think, was just outside of the FCS poll last week um, and, again, led at half. And or, or, uh, Montana came out and scored 45 straight points. That's impressive. You, you kind of tip your cap to that. But... Uh, I, I don't think, and, and we'll look at this more throughout the week. I don't think you look at this game, especially with the way Oregon just handled Nevada, and go, "This is going to be a tight game at the end." I, I, I really think if Oregon plays 90% of what they played against Nevada, this is going to be a, a another really lopsided game, another game where you're going to get to see a lot of these second team offensive and defensive guys that we were just talking about play most of the second half um, uh, in a game where. As you enter Pac-12 play, these are going to be kind of some of your last in-game live rep opportunities to really see what you've got at some positions with some young guys. And I think they're going to utilize it that way. And I don't want to totally overlook Montana because, like we said, they, they, they're they 2-0. They're a, a ranked FCS opponent. But at the same time, Oregon is 1-1, one and one, and they just beat the crap out of a team in Nevada, Nevada that I think would probably be at least a two- or three-score favorite over Montana. So... I'm expecting another game similar to the Nevada game. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more to coaches and players throughout the week to get kind of an idea of what Montana does. But just kind of the preliminary look, this is a, ta- a good FCS team. I don't think a good FCS team is going to be enough to really contend with Oregon, which I think is a good to very good, uh, you know, FBS team. What I'm trying to think of, like, 
what would constitute a good game from Oregon? Because these are these are difficult games, right? Like Oregon's played Montana like eight times and in this series. And for the most part, the most recent one came in two thousand five when Oregon won forty seven to fourteen. I feel like if that was kind of the outcome of of Saturday's game against Oregon against Montana, that would be like, hey, we won, but why was it so close, right? Like, I'm trying to just, you know, these are always difficult games for you know teams like Oregon to play because unless you do what you did against Nevada, yeah, I was just gonna say it, it, it almost kind of comes across as like, yeah, you played good, but you should have beat them by even more and. I guess my question then becomes like, what's a, what's an outcome that you feel good about what you saw at Oregon? It, it, is it like shutting them out on you know even if you score just forty two points, it's shutting them out, or you know do you need to score in the sixties? Um, you know, obviously if, if this game is is two scores or less or three scores or less, that's probably not good, right? You set the bar very, very high against Nevada, winning 77-6. I think that's going to be hard to replicate. And I think if Oregon fans come away and Oregon wins by uh, 64 points instead of 71 and Oregon fans are somehow disappointed, you know what I mean, that that would be unreasonable. I think what happened against Nevada was kind of absolute best case, and I'm not expecting it to be, yeah, 77-3 to or 70-0. to I think that would be a lot to ask. At the same time, I think they're going to be extremely dominant, and I don't think it's a game where fans are going to I, – I would hope fans don't leave the stadium after they win, you know, 63-6 to six or, you know, whatever it is, 56-10, to 10 going, gosh, they took, they regressed. They took a step back this week. They weren't able to win by 70. Um, that's, a, that's an unfair expectation, I think, to have going into a game. At the same time, I do think they're going to win in a fashion where fans aren't questioning it. I don't expect a let-up game. We haven't seen that at all so far. Um, from this group, they, they seem like a group that, that is pretty dialed in, is pretty aware of what they need to do. And again, because there's no drop off seemingly from the first to the second team on defense, especially, I shouldn't say no drop off, but the drop off isn't that big. I think that defense is gonna, is gonna continue to play really, really well in that second half and go, look, we didn't allow Nevada to score in the second half. I don't want to allow Montana to score either. So I, I think it's gonna be a lopsided game. I think it's gonna be a game that Oregon wins by, yeah. Five, six, seven—I don't know, maybe eight touchdowns. But I also think it's unfair to be like, okay, the threshold for for being a successful day is beating the this opponent by more than they just beat Mon- or they just beat Nevada because that Nevada game everything kind of broke right for them. They played almost perfect, and to expect that you know in consecutive weeks maybe feels a little bit uh, unjustified. Yeah, I want to see what will constitute Oregon playing a, a good football game for me. Is it be clean? And you 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 play a clean football game from start to finish, and that doesn't mean you you, you score eighty points and the, you know Montana only scores three and they have one hundred and fifty yards of offense. Like I, I'm not going to worry about the numbers aspect of it because sometimes things happen, but I want to see this football team come out and have the same mental approach that it did for Nevada for Montana and. Come out, start well, finish, finish the game, you know, and, and in that in between period, play really, really clean football, right? Like offensively, don't get called for holding penalties. Um, don't start off slow moving the football. Be sharp from start to finish. Take your shots down the field and execute those. Run game, you know, 
get the correct holes and um, produce eat up yards. Defensively, you know, attack the quarterback, whether it's the first string or the third string. Don't give up the explosion play. Don't have that broken play. Don't get beat and have to commit some kind of penalty to give, you know, to prevent a touchdown from scoring. Like you want to see that same aggressiveness and that same, you know, clean style of football that we saw against Nevada. And you do that, the score will take care of itself. Um, you know, Montana might score some points, and you know, if they keep their first string in, and Oregon has their third string in in, in the game, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me if Montana put up a couple points. Um, but it's competing and playing a clean football game from start to finish. That's what you know. You do that. You don't make self-inflicted wounds, and you don't, you know, you don't have some kind of hangover effect of the previous week, and you don't overlook this opponent. Oregon should, Oregon should, should have a game where they walk out of that stadium, where they do maybe score 70 points again because they're that good. But it's going to require the mental, you know, focus and the preparation this week of, of treating Montana like they would, they treated Nevada. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think this is a you measure you're measuring yourself basically as opposed to measuring yourself against the opponent because in this case for the second straight week you're the could have the better team, the more talented team. It's you're right. It's coming out playing clean football, limiting mistakes, maybe not making as many penalties, you know, avoiding the mishap they had on special teams this last week, which led to some Nevada, you know, a Nevada field goal. Uh, it's avoiding those things. It's also continuing to be aggressive defensively. I think. I mean, the stats for Saturday were eye-opening in terms of, you know, 13, I think, tackles for loss, five sacks, you know, four turnovers, a defensive touchdown. It's continuing to be aggressive in that same manner. And, and again, against Montana, trying to trying to be as respectful as possible of the opponent, but it's an FCS opponent. I think if they play at the same level as they played against Nevada, uh, it, it, the game will be dominant enough, and it'll be very, very clear that this team, uh, you know, is, is ready for Pac-12 play. All right, that game... Saturday night, 7.45 is the start time. It's going to air on the Pac-12 networks. Wouldn't surprise me, though, Eric, if that game goes even later to closer till 8 o'clock when the official kickoff starts, just knowing how football is and TV stuff. It always kind of bleeds over just a little bit. So it's going to be a late night. Uh, hopefully, Duck fans are prepared for that. Um, it was also a late night week, too, in, in the Pac-12 slate, and – for Oregon, Eric, you come out of this week two going, oh, wow, Oregon now has the inside track almost to win the Pac-12 North after just two weeks because of two outcomes that happened Saturday night while we were in the press box. And then when we got home, um, the first one, uh, USC absolutely dominated Stanford uh, in the second half. It was 2024 at halftime, and then USC rattled off 21 points. USC, uh, Stanford really couldn't move the football in the second half, and the Trojans delivered a, a, a pretty significant blow to Stanford for, and won that football game 45-20, to 20, uh, which opened up, you know, I probably ideally Oregon wanted Stanford to win that um, because it, it gives better window dressing for Oregon to go down there in two weeks. Um, but nonetheless, Stanford now has a loss in the Pac-12 slate, and then I think the bigger surprise is that it happened again. California upset Washington, and this time it happened uh, at Husky Stadium. They won 20-19 to in a football game that had like a two-and-a-half-hour lightning delay. Um, but I watched that game 
I have no idea why I watched the entirety of that football game until like 1.30 in the morning. Um, but I came away thinking, A, California's defense is really good again, but their offense is just bad. And Washington, I, I'm not impressed at all with what I saw from Jacob Eason. Um, you know, Salvin Ahmed's a, a good running back, but, you know, the Husky defense was average, I felt like. The, the offense was very average, and this Husky team, you know, they've now been delivered a, a blow, and they also have a loss. So, you know, Oregon, I think, now has the inside track because both Stanford and Washington are places that Oregon has to play at, and th- both those teams have losses, and then they play Cal, and they play Cal at home. So you, you look at the Pac-12 North and how it's starting to shake up, I mean, maybe maybe Washington State is the team that Oregon needs to fear the most in, in, in the Pac-12 North. The way this is kind of sorted out, it's it's almost come down. It's it's sort of simplified things for Oregon. To me, if they go and they beat Stanford and Washington on the road, and they beat even if it's just one of Cal and Washington State at home, and then they win the rest of their games, they're going to win the Pac-12, right? right? Yeah. I mean, like like they, this is sort of the margin of error. Has widened, has widened a little bit. You know, Oregon has now, and and you don't. It's, it's probably the wrong way to look at it, but that's why I'm not playing on the team. But there, you've now got an opportunity here where if you do have a weird game like you did last year at Arizona, where you just don't show up and you get beaten by a team you shouldn't beat, uh, you can still recover from that. Last year they couldn't recover from it. This year they've kind of created a little bit margin of error, and of course you hate to go into Pac-12 play looking at it that way. But I just think it's the truth. I mean, you were expecting Washington to maybe lose one or two Pac-12 games all season, and you were hoping one of those losses was against Oregon. And now they've lost, they've already lost a game. Uh, they play Utah, uh, which is going to be a very challenging game. They also play Washington State, which is always challenging. But I, I just think there's a chance now that Washington, the way they look, is going to lose two, three, four games. I mean, who knows? And I mean, this, that, they, they might lose this week. I mean, seeing what Cal's offense could do, in terms of I – mean, Cal just didn't finish some plays. I mean, they right. had opportunities there um, to score more points. They just didn't do it. And now Washington is an out – it's a non-conference game, but they play Hawaii, you know, this week at home. And last time I checked, you know, Hawaii's offense can really move the ball up and down the field. And they have that five-wide type stuff. And, you know, with, with – all the guys that, you know, the Huskies have lost in the secondary and on defense the last year and a half, you know, that's going to be a big test. I mean, all of a sudden that game becomes, I mean, it doesn't impact the conference race at all, but from a, a national perspective, Washington can't lose that game. Yeah, well, and the Pac-12 can't go 0-3 against Hawaii either. No, I mean, that, <laughs> absolutely I mean, not. At, at that point, are you, like, relegating Oregon State and you're adding Hawaii to the conference? I mean, if Hawaii goes to Hawaii, is like, if Hawaii has, like, a better record than most Pac-12 teams against the Pac-12, that's not a great sign. Um, but, no, I, I think one thing, just also looking at this, is we, there was so much talk about how Oregon's season was going to be dis- determined on the road in Pac-12 play. And I still think that's true because you still have to play Washington. You still have to play Stanford. You still have to play USC, who should mention it, is looking much better now uh, this week than they did a week ago um, after the JT Daniel injury. And, and Arizona State, who's looked okay. But now I think this Cal game and that Washington State game at home, those two teams, I mean, Washington State's offense has not missed a beat without Gardner Minshew. Nope. Um, you know, Anthony Gordon's the quarterback there, and they just put up two big, big scoring games. And I know it was against 
New Mexico State, and I think Northern Colorado. Uh, so they're not playing the best of the best. But We'll learn a lot about Washington State this week because they play at Houston. Exactly, yeah. So that, that, we're going to learn more of this upcoming week with them. But if it, if it ends up being more of an Oregon-Cal-Washington State race for the Pac-12 North, and again, we're maybe – Maybe this is a little knee-jerk considering it's just one one round of Pac-12 games played. But if it ends up being that's the way the race plays out, Oregon plays those teams at home, and that's a significant advantage. And if Oregon just takes advantage of their – if Oregon basically – I would say this. If Oregon wins their home games in Pac-12 play and is is 5-0 and in those games, and they are able to beat Washington on the road and Stanford on the road, they, they win the conference, right? I mean, it's, that's, it's that simple. And it's the way things look right now. And that even means that they could probably go out there and struggle against USC and struggle against Arizona State on the road, which I do think are going to be tough road games, yep. and still and still win the conference, at least win the division to, to set up a game with Utah, uh, you know, in the conference championship game. So, yeah, everything is sort of broken right so far for Oregon. And um, they get, again, this upcoming week, there's going to be some, some tough games going around the league, and Oregon's going to be playing Montana. So it's an opportunity for maybe more of that to fall their way as well. Uh, a couple quick notes of note before we wrap up the show. Oregon at Stanford in two weeks on the 21st of September. We now have a start time, and we also have a TV channel. Um, ESPN is going to be broadcasting this game, and the Ducks are going to be in prime time again. They have the 4 p.m. Uh, kickoff. So it's a 4 p.m. game on ESPN. And just from a context perspective, what is the 4 p.m. Uh, ESPN game for week three? Uh, number nine, Florida at Kentucky, a game that was kind of, you know, being billed as one of those bigger games in the SEC this year. So, you know, you, you're getting a very good TV spot. A lot of eyeballs are going to be on you. Um, I imagine it's, it's probably not going to be the biggest, it's not going to be the biggest game no. of week, of week four. Um, but ESPN's viewing it as, hey, this is going to be one of, you know, our four or five marquee games of the entire day. And Oregon is, you know, is, has been picked for that. You, you look at the other games that are on around that time that we know of so far. Um, Notre Dame at Georgia will be at five. That's going to be probably the game of the week. Um, at, at three o'clock, or excuse me, at, at four o'clock, uh, is the Oregon game. And then, you know, we're waiting on a couple other ones, but you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, that's a huge football game. That's at 9 a.m. Um, you know, so you, you've got a couple, Big other games we're waiting on Auburn at Texas A&M. That could be, you know, ABC's primetime game. Oklahoma State at Texas. Uh, you know, we've got some games that are going to be you know, of note, but for the most part, it looks like Oregon's going to be, you know, a primetime game. And that's kind of exactly what you want. Absolutely. Especially after, you know, the good thing is, is that Oregon's already played a game in primetime. People know this Oregon team a little bit and they didn't completely embarrass themselves, right? I mean, they, they looked good in that Auburn game. I think objectively you probably came away feeling like at least this Oregon team is, is competent, but they didn't win. And then this game on the Pac-12 Network, I hate to say it, people probably just saw the highlights. I don't think many yeah. people watch this game, especially not nationally. Um, this game against Stanford, and it's going to be the same case, we should say, against Montana. Not, that game's going to get lost. It's going to be people are going to see the score, look at the box score, maybe watch the highlights. That's going to be the extent of what most people nationally are going to get to watch. The game against Stanford provides them that first opportunity to really be on a national stage again after the Auburn game. And with they come out and blow Stanford out. That's, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's a potential game to really announce yourself as the big dog in the Pac-12 and as a, as a real team to watch, even on a national level. I know we've talked about the college football playoff and kind of that feels like it's a little out of reach right now because they already lost a game. But 
that's a big, uh, that's a great opportunity. You go out and Stanford still has a name recognition, their name brand. We don't necessarily know what's going to be with KJ Costello. I, I know he missed this last game. I think he's dealing with a concussion. I would imagine he'd be close to back, but sometimes that stuff can be tough. It's a pretty gnarly play. Um, I, I could just see this being a game though. Yeah. If Oregon comes out and takes care of business and they win in dominant fashion, that, that really pushes the narrative and that maybe moves Oregon up further and further in those polls because right now, the perception is is that Oregon, you know, showed that they could compete with Auburn, but couldn't make the plays down the stretch, and, and frankly made some some pretty key errors down the down the stretch. And then this Nevada game is basically just box score window, you know, window watching. You know, people didn't really didn't really watch this game probably on a national level, and they look at the box score, and I'm sure they're impressed. But that Stanford game is that next opportunity to really make a statement. And I think, again, with the way Oregon looks right now, I, I wouldn't be shocked at all if they go down there and and really churn in a strong performance. I'm going to put you on the spot. I'll go first. One thing, Eric, that you are looking to find out this week um, or see in the football game and uh, against Montana, for for me, it's two-parter. I want to know more about Darian Felix. What can he do uh, in, in football uh, and in this Oregon offense? And, and so I want to see Felix continue to get more carries. I said they wanted to get – it would be ideal to get him 20 carries between Nevada and Montana to get a good feel of what he could do and bring to this tape to the table for this offense. So I, I'm, I'm watching that. And then I also just want to see just if Oregon is who they say they are and they are this elite power football team, they come out of the gates on fire against Montana and you know, they build some impressive lead at halftime and just end all doubt of the Grizzlies having a chance to play uh, against the Ducks in this football game? I, I feel pretty good about where the defense is at, and frankly, I'm not sure if I see anything this week against Montana that's going to really change my opinion all that much. You know, I guess if it was a shutout and they scored like three touchdowns or something like that, I'd be like, wow, these guys are maybe even better than I thought, but I think we already kind of know what they are. I, I still want to see this this passing game. I want to see... You know, just the t- you know, because we we saw a lot of interesting stuff this week, but we also were watching a, a passing attack that was without again six wide receivers on scholarship. I want to see how they choose to uh, attack Montana. Maybe Juwan Johnson's back. Maybe JJ Tucker's available. I want to see is it going to be a thing where they do continue to really lean upon their tight ends? I think they should. I thought the tight ends have played really well through two weeks, and clearly they had I think what four different tight ends score touchdowns on Saturday. Um, I, I'm curious to see. A little bit more of that because, you know, ultimately I know that they probably ease some concerns when you throw for 400 yards and have seven passing touchdowns, but I still think there's, to me at least, a little bit of, I want to see them continue to do this. I want to see that there's still proof that when the game's on the line that they can have a wide receiver or tight end get open and make some plays. And I know the game's not going to be on the line probably all that much against Montana, but I just want to see this group go out um, and, and continue to be impressive. That's going to do it for us on the Odds and Audibles podcast. Thanks for listening. For Eric Scopel and myself, Matt Bream, we'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos.